0: I would say Presbyterians have become pretty locked into the middle class.
1: Welcome to this episode of Church Pivot, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Today, Case Thorpe has a conversation with pastor, author, and evangelist, Dr. Timothy Keller. They discuss today's church, the challenges she is facing, and the opportunities that wait just around the corner.
0: I'll put it this way, the Presbyterians are so afraid of dumbing down
1: that they don't know how to simplify. What is the church's future? How might she keep pivoting, keeping one foot firmly planted in the truth, and another always reforming towards the best methodologies in order to make the shot to spread the gospel? Well, today we find out on this edition of Church Pivot.
2: Hi friends, this is Case Thorpe, and it's my joy to serve our collection of churches in the EPC as moderator this year. And I wanted to start by just sharing what a great term of service it's already been. It is September as we're recording this. Hurricane Dorian has just passed us by here in Orlando, and we certainly are in prayer for our two EPC churches in Marsh Harbor and Freeport. Um, but I have served since June when I was elected to the General Assembly, and i i tell you, in just a few short months, I've gotten a chance to spend some great time with so many amazing leaders in our church and some truly exciting spirit led growth going on in our greater family. And this we need to celebrate this. We need to lift up. So I was in an EPC church recently that last year had thirty five hundred adult confessions of faith. Thirty five hundred. Wow. I met two church planters who were so inspiring. Brian Evans at 5.7 church in downtown Detroit and uh, Dave Strunk at church of the redeemer in Maryville, just South of Knoxville. And it was awesome to hear of the great growth that God's doing in people's lives. So the, another example, the moderators of our 14 presbyteries came here to the office of the general assembly in Orlando for a couple days of prayer and training. And I sat in and listened and over half of those moderators shared that they were struggling because of the large number of ministerial candidates coming through their system that so many uh, men and women being called to ministry that they've got to retool in order to manage it that that that's a that's a good problem to have another example a few Saturdays ago at our presbytery of Florida and the Caribbean meeting the church where we were meeting they were ending their time with an interim pastor. And actually at our meeting, we were approving their new called pastor. And one of his first problems is going to be working with their session on whether they split their worship service into two separate times and what's that going to look like. So a great problem of growth. Uh, There's another church here due West of Orlando Um, they are a church plant in a particular community. Well, another church down the road, sadly had died and fallen apart and they literally gave our EPC church plant their property, just gave it to them. Well, since moving into this property, the EPC church plant now has had so much growth that I talked to the pastor and and he's concerned. He said, I need help. I need ideas, The, the growth management. Um, can you, can you help give me some ideas? So, friends, these are good problems to have and great stories of God at work that we need to lift up. Yet, I know too that this isn't everyone's experience. Certainly, every church's experience. Uh, you may be listening and a bit frustrated with church decline or your church having plateaued. You you may have been praying for adult conversions for such a long, long time and been so faithful and hungry. To see that happen, you you might have some internal church conflict going on right now or questions about which ministry methodology to pursue. Do we do this in discipleship or that in outreach? Well, friends, that's why we're here today. And I want to continue this series of communicating with you, the leaders of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, through a series of blogs and podcasts entitled Church Pivot. Now, why the title church pivot? Well, recently I was bringing God's word to the Presbytery of the Southeast, and I shared with them, you know, as a kid, I, I was not known for my athletic skill. And surprise, surprise, today I am still not breaking any records. But I'll tell you what, when I played basketball in middle school, I actually got a nickname for some of my basketball skills. Uh, For those of you that know me, uh, I'm a little square (laughs) or or stocky, if you will. I, I wore husky jeans as a boy. Well, imagine now, here I am on the middle school basketball court and my skill was not dunking. No, no. My skill was not running the layups or shooting the free throws. But let me tell you, this little square body came in handy when it came to pivoting. So friends knew get case the ball and he can redirect the game. And the way it worked was I got the ball and I put these uh, husky hips into action. And let me tell you, I could clear the court from all those little skinny boys in a second. And I became known as the enforcer, the enforcer. Well, I put that unfortunate image in your mind uh, to get this idea of church pivot, this idea that we in the 21st century, have got to keep a firm foot on our theology, on our confessional statement, on our um, convictions from scripture. But yet we've got to shift. We've got to pivot in order to change our methodology, evolve the way in which we do church, the way we are disciples, if we hope to be successful in the future. And that's why we're here today. So it's my honor now to have with us the Reverend Dr. Timothy Keller as our guest. He's no stranger to us in the EPC. Tim, as you may remember, preached at the 34th General Assembly that was held at Cedar Springs Church in Knoxville in 2014. Uh, For those of you who may not know, Tim is a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, seminary professor, prolific author, and in 1989, planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. It grew to over 6,000 people. He retired a few years back and now channels his energies towards the work of City to City, a global church planning movement for the urban context. And so, um, Tim, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it.
0: Glad to be with you.
2: Uh, I'm particularly grateful for your pioneering work in faith and work, which has certainly blessed us and our church. Now, I imagine you probably know this, but uh, to many reformed Gen Xers and millennials, you're affectionately called the Presbyterian Pope.
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Have you heard this before? (laughs) No. (laughs) You have
2: not. Oh my goodness.
0: It's a Pope. I'm a Pope with like no, with no authority or power. If that's (laughs) what I am.
2: Well, yeah. Just the fancy clothes and the the mobile. Well, (laughs) <laughs> well, so here in this podcast with Church Pivot, we're looking at how we in the 21st century move forward and how we do well and continue to, to be strong. And so these questions are kind of geared in that direction. And so just to begin with, especially now you've been out of the pulpit a few years in that daily grind. I'm curious your take on the American church in this cultural moment and maybe how being out of the pulpit has given you some new perspective.
0: Well, I, I being out of the pulpit does in a way it does. I mean you're not I'm not as absorbed in just one church's uh, internal uh condition, which is what happens when you're the pastor of a church, especially a big church. Big church is like a is like a city mm. and so there's there's so many moving parts. So yeah, it's true. Being out, traveling more, talking more, perhaps. I I I don't know that it's changed my view, but I do think that uh uh i think i've i think i believe that in the last two years there's a lot of bad signs
3: mm.
0: when it comes to the the health of the American church, and I think getting out has only confirmed what I had intuited or what i had read mm. so uh there's you know there's decline almost across the board mm-hmm. so uh you know the uh uh you know a growing percentage i mean this is this is every i'm sure your listeners know. A growing percentage of people say they have no religious preference, so that used to be, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago was maybe 5 to 7 percent of the population, and
3: right.
0: 10 or 15 years from now, it's going to be more like um, maybe 35 percent or something like that. Uh, the younger generation is very, very far higher numbers of saying, I'm an atheist, I'm a, or I'm not religious, or I don't go to church, and So there's an estimate that there's going to be a pretty massive leaving of younger people from the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably only 10 or 15% of churches in the the country are growing, and two-thirds are in decline. Seminaries are actually mostly in decline. Um, And even the statistics on church planting are uh, that—and it's very hard to tell, but the people who've tried to look at this would say at the very, very most— um church planting is is just about keeping pace with church closures.
3: Mm.
0: So it's not really increasing so you have an increasing number of people that just aren't going to church and the churches are in decline uh in general mm-hmm. and and the number of churches is staying about the same even though the population's growing. So, you know, you can do I'm not a I'm a liberal arts major so I don't do numbers well, but <laughs> even even I can tell the number of churches is staying the same And declining in membership and the population is growing Mm -hmm. then we're just falling way behind so there's all sorts of problems out there and I guess I'm just more aware than I used to be
2: well I pair that with what I've heard called the the gray cliff that as boomers transition to glory or elsewhere the churched uh, population that will be gone in terms of their money and attendance is going to be an even uh, more dramatic impact
0: uh, it's pretty well known that younger generations of Christians don't give financially as much. Now you might say they don't have as much too. That may be, that may go together.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but they, they're not as likely to give to their local church as the boomers were mm-hmm. and they probably don't have as much. So yeah, that's true. There's probably a financial cliff they say coming too.
2: Mm-hmm. So. And this political sociological moment with media and the perception of Christians doesn't help.
0: No, it's a big, 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 big problem. You, know, you, notice, how many, you notice how many bigs I just put in there? Was it, was, it, was it six, five? I can't remember. Big, 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 big. Uh, yeah, especially among young people. I would say the biggest PR coup, uh, people who don't like the church, the biggest PR coup of the, of the last several years was um, basically giving the impression that the entire evangelical church is committed to one particular political party. And that what that has done is that it, it, it's, it's done a wonderful job of discrediting hmm. the evangelical church. Sure. The reality, of course, is the evangelical church is, is increasingly racially diverse. Uh, every year it's becoming more racially diverse. And therefore, the people who actually believe evangelical convictions... About the full authority of the Bible and the deity of Christ and the necessity of being born again. I mean, the the number of people in this country who hold those convictions are increasingly uh, racially diverse and therefore really politically diverse. Sure. but you would never get that impression from the, the the press. The press has done a wonderful job of saying that if you are, you know you're a born again Christian, then that you've they've all gone after this this particular political party. And it's a way of getting younger people, mm-hmm. um, especially very, very upset. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't believe it's true. I think it's more apparent than real. There's, there's some truth to it, but it's also not true.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and yet that's definitely part of the, the discrediting and the overall decline, especially on the part of young people leaving the church. Yes.
2: Well, that actually leads to my second question. As you know, here in downtown Orlando, uh, we serve in a very LGBTQ friendly context and it's gotten increasingly so, or even more sensitive since the pulse tragedy. And so it's, it's rough sometimes to not be treated as one who's a hater. How how do we uphold our standards and then not be perceived as haters in the public square?
0: Well, um, there's things you can do to try to mitigate it, but I don't know. You can eliminate it. If people Believe what they want to believe. Um, the you know the metaphor, the the metaphor that what Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Okay, mm-hmm. and he doesn't mean the earth. He means he doesn't he doesn't mean the literal ground. What he means because actually nobody puts salt in the earth. You know unless you're trying to ruin your garden, uh, nobody actually puts salt in the earth. Well, he, he means salt of the world, mm. uh, and salt has several different features in the in the ancient times. It was both a preservative and a and a seasoning. So it brought out it brought out the good in the meat, you know, it also served to preserve it from decay. So and it also only works if it goes out into the meat. Mm. Uh, and and also only works if it's different than the meat. In other words it's kind of a different chemical thing. So to be salt in society means that we're supposed to be doing everything we can to be engaged, to be bringing out the very best and appreciating what's out there, uh, to be trying to uh, mitigate what's bad. So we really are supposed to be serving, we're supposed to be involved, we're supposed to be good neighbors, but we have to stay salt. In other words, if salt has lost its savor, what's good is it? If the salt has the very same chemical structure as the meat, it's no good. Mm. It doesn't help the meat. That's what's so weird. If it becomes like the meat, it's of no use to the meat. And, and therefore, what you have to say is, you know, as Christians, our identity is in Christ. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he's the one who rules us. And he tells us, uh, he, you know, we see the world through him. And therefore, it means so to be salt in the world means you go out with a servant heart rather than trying to dominate. Hmm. Then secondly, you still insist on your Christian Faith, but without triumphalism, and are willing to self critique the mm. the church in the past. Mm. And then, third, you're willing to stay in relationships even when you're when exposure uh, to attacks happen, and you just don't respond in kind. In other words, you know, the one is you you go out in service. Number two is you still in, you still non-triumphalistically. Uh, stay true to your your beliefs, mm. and then when people attack you, you don't withdraw, but yeah. at least you you stay as open to people as they are to you. If they don't want to speak to you, well, that's that. Yeah. But you're you're not the one that cuts it off.
2: You stay present.
0: Yeah, you stay as present as you can, and you're willing, you're willing to take it. Now, I mean, I said without retaliation. That was the early Christians. If you if you hurt them, they, you know, they. If you burn their house down, they didn't come and burn your, ha- their, your house down.
3: Mm.
0: It's this. It, it's not like ethnic strife, or you know, the one, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys. If they come and shoot one of yours, they'll come, You shoot. They shoot one of yours. It, and and I think it's extremely important for Christians to be able to live out the non-retaliation of the gospel mm-hmm. by staying present, not being, you know, like I said, being servant-hearted, not being belligerent, not being triumphalistic doing what you can, but still being true to your faith. And when people attack you, just not attacking back. And that's what it means to be a, a salt in, of the earth.
2: Mm-hmm. Your, your concept of exilic discipleship has really helped me. Could you share more about that and how it plays out?
0: Well, that's the same. You see, the point is I just use a different metaphor. You just, you just, uh, you switch metaphors. And that's fine too. An exile is someone Like, when the Jews were citizens of of Jerusalem, which means they worshipped the God of Israel, and they followed the laws of Israel, but then they became exiles in Babylon, God told them not to withdraw. See, the easiest thing to do would have been to stay out into a ghetto of some kind.
3: Mm.
0: But to get involved in the life of the city and to... um, seek the peace of the city and to pray for its prosperity and do everything you could to be good citizens of that city but staying true to your true citizenship which is in, which is Jerusalem not worshipping the gods of Babylon and stay and following the laws of of Israel that is a horrible tension you know mm. especially when there's hostility between Babylon and and Jerusalem you know but the fact is you're supposed to be as as uh, as involved and as uh, present and as uh, s- as much a servant as you possibly can of your earthly city. And at the same time, in any way, compromise your beliefs and your following of the, mm. the laws of the heavenly city. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, somebody told me years ago he was a British citizen and he had lived half of his life in Egypt. I think this was back in, to show how old this is, it must have been in the 50s, 60s, the Suez Canal. Yeah. Anyway, there was a time in which he was a British citizen, and he loved Egypt, and he knew the Egyptian language, and you know he was fine with Egypt. But he was a British citizen, and when when there was hostilities between Egypt and Britain, you can you see what do you do? Mm. Uh, it's really hard Where's home? because your friends are Egyptian. You're trying to be, and yet at the same time, you are still loyal to your 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 British citizenship, and the the Egyptian society is hostile to you. Sure and that 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 can happen, and that's what does happen here, increasingly so as the years go by, that people are hostile to our our God and our laws mm. and and yet we're supposed to be we're supposed to be seeking the peace of Babylon.
2: Well, and I find it tricky in that I'm sort of in this transitional uh, generation in leadership. I grew up in the Jerusalem of all Jerusalems as a Christian in the South, and yet, Uh, recognize both on the greater cultural scale and even wherever I've been called to serve, these dynamics are unfolding. And so it's not easy to, to transition from Jerusalem to Babylon. (laughs) It's another thing. If you grew up there all and have that mindset from the start.
0: Yeah. And and by the way, part of the problem of the church, I remember um, what always happens is if you're a longtime resident of a town, Mm. You, you, tend to, you tend to stay, um, you're in the institutions in town, and your friends are all people that, you know, were born and raised there just like you. Sure. And you don't realize the town's changed. You don't realize that 30% of the town now are younger, this or that or this or that. And you sort of see them on the street maybe occasionally, but you have no idea what percentage of the population has changed because you hang out in your bubble. Sure. And sure. even though you say, well, I've been here all my life. I know this town really well, but act, very often you don't. You know, you know the people of the town that you grew up with, and you usually are out of, in some ways, the newcomers sometimes know the town better than you do mm. um, because, they, because they, they know the degree to which these, these particular neighborhoods have changed and these particular uh, new companies have started up and that sort of thing. So a lot of Christians in this country don't realize how much the country's changed. Mm.
2: What they some, really don't. What were some ways you got yourself out of the bubble or tried to really see what the town was like?
0: Oh, well, I moved to New York City. So <laughs> I don't ha- I don't have a good answer. That'll do it to you. I, 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 in other words, yeah, what you're really asking is, if you lived all your life in Orlando and you're still in the bubble, how do you get out of your bubble? I actually don't know exactly mm. Mm. because I didn't do that. What I did was I moved <laughs> from... <laughs> I moved to New York city in 1989 and I saw the future mm. because what the, the, the culture tends to flow from the heart of the biggest cities and then it moves over. It used to be this way. It used to be, it would take five or 10 years to move to the smaller cities and then 20 years to move everywhere. Now that you, that just hurries up because of media. Sure. So what uh, it used to be, if you were a teenager in a small town in Iowa, you were radically culturally different than a teenager in Manhattan. Right Now there's a relatively small difference. It may, it, I'm not saying there isn't any, but there, it's much smaller because they're all, in, you know, they're all consuming the same media. But the media tends to flow from Hollywood, mm-hmm. Silicon. It tends to flow from Silicon Valley or Hollywood or Cambridge, Massachusetts or New York City. See, and that's and, and what it that's what generates. And, but now because of media, because social media, that sort of thing, now the culture, the culture forming wombs of the country move the culture f- along a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, no matter where you are, if you're in Iowa um, and you're uh, you know in your fifties or sixties, you use the internet, you use social media a little bit. You have no idea though how much your your grandchildren or your children mm. have been. Shoot. completely changed by it completely
2: well and that's why i feel like the work you've done and the ideas you have to share are relevant to a small town in louisiana or iowa as you say and yeah,
0: yeah it's that's you know what that's right it's increasingly true i that just dawned on me years ago actually now when i would usually most when people ask me to come speak anywhere i said you know what I mean, New York is so weird. When I got here in the 80s, it was so different than everywhere else that I almost felt like no. I don't, you don't need to learn anything from me right. because what I'm doing here is not going to be relevant to you. At a certain point, I began to realize, no, that's not true yeah. because as technology changed, it, it flowed out to other places, and I began, yeah, and um, that's the reason why. Mm. There is some. It's good and bad. I mean, it's mainly bad. But it's partly good in that I do think that uh, in some ways the culture is more homogeneous. It's not – I mean Mm -hmm. there's still a big big difference between Mm -hmm. Texas and Massachusetts. Of course there is. And yet in the cities, I don't know. You go into Austin or the middle of Houston or the middle of Dallas. I mean the the closer you are to the center of these cities, the more than it does – the regions don't matter as much. You're connected. You're really connected So the same thing with Orlando. Orlando seems like a very, uh, mm. you know, uh, you know, really a sunbelt city feels very suburban, you know, very white. I mean, overall. And, and yet, and yet actually, in the, when you get to the end of the center of, of Orlando, you're connected. Yeah. You know, to everywhere else in the world.
2: If you're just joining us, this is Case Thorpe with Evangelical Presbyterian Church and we're talking with Tim Keller. Um, Tim, if I could shift uh, in a different direction now, we're in the, in the EPC, we're having a conversation about theological training. And as you say, seminaries, some of them are in decline. And what are the standards that we want for our teaching elders? And you've said in the past that we need to be more theologically trained, not less. Yeah. But there's this tension about the expense to get a formal MDiv as well just being very mindful of those coming from the minority community without the resources. So how do you see we can navigate this going forward?
0: Oh, I think it's really important to do it. Yeah. I, um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll reiterate what I, what you've heard me say. Um, I actually think that because the culture is so much more complicated than it's ever been, that, um, that if anything, we actually we need more academic training. We need to be more theologically rooted. We're just going to get pulled along by the culture.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we also need to be reading. Uh, we, we need to be reading philosophy, not just theology, because philosophers, Christian philosophers especially, very often do a better job of analyzing the culture. And so that's the that's the fear I have is that is that. Um, is that in an effort, I mean, it's really true that, the, that that our theological education is not great at practical ministry training. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also is, it's it's horribly upper middle class because it really makes it, it's kind of inaccessible to many, many communities. Um, but as soon as you, I really think that if you just say, oh, well, we, you know, well, let's just make it less academic and shorter and more practical and all that stuff, I think, I think we're just going to get swept along. So here's what I Here's, here's, a, here's a, this is a very general, this isn't very specific, but mm. I really think that the, the key is that in every city you have to have a combination of, of academics and practitioners that are offering lots and lots and lots of non-degree theological education and practical education. Not, not for a degree program. It's got to be, it, it takes a long time. Uh, in in order to fit into busy schedules and yes. to fit into people who don't have the money to just pick up and leave and go someplace.
3: Sure.
0: I actually th- I actually do think the residential seminary has maybe had it,
3: mm.
0: where people pick up and move for three or four years to go somewhere.
3: Right. That, I
0: mean, that's very middle class or upper middle class. It's just impossible for more and more people. So what you have to do is you have to have a regional place that offers some degrees, yeah. But by and large, what you really need is I need... <laughs> You need continuing education, massive continuing education. You need academics and practitioners to get you to read books you'll never read other way. You're not going to read them on your own, but you're also going to have to. You, you need help. Right. But at the same time, you can't. You they, they won't fit into an MDiv anyway. Right. So I guess let me let me put it this way. You need to pr- 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 provide lots and lots of non-accredited, non-degree program. Mm-hmm. And, um, more and more of our, our theological training. I'm not saying you shouldn't have any degrees at all, but my guess is the degree. Make it a two-year degree, by the way. I'm sorry. This, I'm, I'm showing my prejudice here. Preach it. Cre- create a two-year degree that gives you the, the basics um, you know, of, of the languages and Bible and all that sort of thing. And you get a you get a degree. I mean you need to get some credit so people can see it on the resume. But basically furnish it with years actually around it of practical and academic continuing education. Lots of reading of the Greats, you know, read Luther and Calvin, but also read you know, Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre. Mm. But you're not going to read that without somebody some academic leading you through it. But also lots more on practical ministry. How do you evangelize? How do you Council how do you lead churches? Mm-hmm. you know you know, mm-hmm. you know seminaries have never been good on the leadership side they they do the preaching part and maybe some pastoring but they don't know how to do leadership mm-hmm. so what you really need you need a blend of practitioners from different races and classes along with top level academics that put together long term continuing education uh, programs in your city mm. where people can and, it, and, it, and that the churches have got to get develop a culture in which our we, we, know that a, we know that 10% of our pastor's time, our minister's time, is going to actually be in continuing education.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, if I can brag on Reform Seminary here in Orlando, Mike Allen and Scott Swain, we do more and more hybrid things where they are grateful for church participation and they bring their academic chops to the table and it, it, it trains people. It's, it's been fun.
0: Yes, so, um, I mean, you're not going to get, um, and I'm, I'm talking about both academic and practical. Mm-hmm. You you cannot possibly fit into a two or three year program what you what you need. So you really you you really are going to have to have in virtually every city, and I don't mean major cities. Virtually every regional center, you really have to have a working a, kind of a, a working. Um, Theological Education Center with both academics and practitioners who are doing both practical ministry and continuing education, and academic ministry too. Reading the reading the big books, uh, it's just crucial. Mm.
2: And then um, I see the polity or the structures of denominations catching up, adjusting, recognizing what it means. Yeah.
0: Well, you see, if you have the if you have a regional center like this, um, the, you can get everything you want without actually getting a, a degree.
3: That's right. Sure.
0: And if, if, if your denomination needs a degree, fine. But if your denomination does not need the degree, or you don't have the, the background, you don't have a college degree, or you only have like two years of community college, and now you're ordained and you're in ministry, the regional these regional theological centers with all these non-accredited, non, not degree programs, but lots and lots of great stuff, you can get what you need. Yeah. You, you can get everything. You, if you want Greek and Hebrew, you can get it. Mm. You have to be able to get it. You have to be able to give it to people without making them get into a degree program. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. All right. Let me uh, turn then to our last question as we are thinking about pivoting the church. Earlier, you had mentioned a lot of those tough signs out there of um, the church decline. Uh, Jim Singleton, you're, uh, at your alma mater, Gordon Conwell Seminary, shows in his research that Presbyterians led both Baptist and Methodist at the turn of the 20th century in adult conversions yet today. I don't know that we could say that to be true for most Presbyterian churches, your thoughts on why, and how do we turn the tide on the adult conversion piece?
0: Well, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not in a position to be totally sure. Um, why, I would say Presbyterians have become pretty locked into the middle class, mm-hmm. upper middle class. Um, it's 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 very clear in Brazil. For example, this sounds really strange. The Presbyterian Church in Brazil is pretty strong. It's stronger than anywhere else in Latin America.
2: Davi Goins.
0: Yeah. On the other, that's right. Yeah, sure, no, Dave. But on the other hand, it's awfully middle class. And that's in and, and that's deadly in Brazil because Brazil does not have a very big middle class. Like I don't know what percentage of the population are working class and poor. It's huge, 80 percent. I don't I know. know. Right. But because it's so locked in, it and it, when I say locked in, it means you have to have your undergraduate degree and then you have to have your graduate degree and you, in other words, all this all this stuff that works fine for middle class people, it doesn't work for non middle class people. That's just the way they're locked in and. They're the same you know interestingly enough they're, I, I heard I've heard this that they're about the same size they were 30 years ago,
3: mm.
0: about the same size. Sure. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the assemblies of God alone has gone from zero to 20 million people wow. in the same period of time. <laughs> they're like a million people I think they and they've had a million people for years. I think it's something like that, but the assemblies of God went from zero to 20 million. now mm-hmm. they're out there among the poor. Uh, and, and so I, now that's an extreme, I don't believe that, I don't think you can just pick that up and say that's what's happening in North America, but something like that's happened. That the Presbyterians, I'll put it this way. The Presbyterians are so afraid of dumbing down that they don't know how to simplify. Mm. True. We're so afraid of dumbing down. We are afraid of it. We love our theology. And in that sense, we're extremely upper middle class. Uh, we don't know how to simplify. How would and and that's the reason why we ha- we are limited in our appeal. So, But I, I unlike Jim, Jim Singleton, I haven't done a lot of research on that, and I don't feel like I – I don't think I can hold forth much longer on this one because well, I don't think I know much more about that.
2: I see it play out where we worship the idols of middle-class appropriateness or radical egalitarianism and these other things that keep us from – changing our discipleship methods or, uh, really identifying with the poor in ways that lead to confessions of faith.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
2: Well, Tim, thank you. I really appreciate your time and you've shared a great deal with us. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, friends, that's all for this episode. I am, um, hitting the road this fall. Certainly going to keep in touch with the needs there in Bahamas, off to visit presbyteries of the Alleghenies, Gulf South and West. I'll be with our church planters at their retreat in Colorado Springs. And I hope to run into some of you at these various places. Many thanks to New City Church, Brandon Queen and Brian Smith for getting this podcast to you. This is Case Thorpe on behalf of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And I'll see you in the next episode of Church Pivot.
1: keep watch for the next Church Pivot blog posting in November and another Church Pivot podcast before Christmas. We would encourage you to share this conversation with your elders, your church, and use it as a tool to help form them for dynamic ministry that is pivoting toward the future Christ has for us. I am Brandon Queen, and thank you for joining us for Church Pivot, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church.